Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski discuss Stephen Kaiser's passing, the one-of-a-kind collection watch event at London's Design Museum, De Beers' Tracer blockchain platform, Recycled Gold, and the JCK Show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of uh, JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How you doing, okay? Yeah, I'm hanging Getting clean. ready? Getting ready. It's... Uh, for the chaos, the excitement? Getting ready for the chaos, the excitement, placing, yeah, I've got a schedule, long schedule in the works. It's starting to fill up. It is. Yeah. For those of you who, who don't know what we're talking about, which I assume most of you do, of course, we're talking about JCK Las Vegas. We are recording this right after Memorial Day weekend. Traditionally, we'd be heading to Vegas today or tomorrow, but given the slight push in this year's schedule due to the Jewish holiday that comes up every few years, I always forget what it is. Is it Shavuot? I think so. Yeah. I'm not sure. Gosh, we should know this by now. It is a holiday that tends to fall every few years right when Vegas is happening, right after Memorial Day weekend. And of course, this year that happened. So the show has been pushed. Luxury opens on Wednesday, June 8th. JCK opens on Friday, June 10th. We will get to that because that is going to be a big part of today's episode. But prior to getting to that, we have to acknowledge our our deepest condolences to Stephen Kaiser's family. Now, Rob, you reported that story. This industry titan passed away just a week ago. And it's still really quite shocking to think that he's no longer with us. Tell us a little bit about, gosh, what what are some of the reactions? action you've heard and, and well, I mean I think everybody's very shocked I mean just like you, we all saw him at 24 Carat Weekend, where, uh, you know, it was amazing, actually, because he got this great award from the JVC, the Stanley Schechter Award. So he gave a nice talk there. He was elected as chairman of the Jewel Security Alliance, and he gave a nice talk there. And it was kind of like a, a Stephen Kaiser weekend. And, you know, nobody figured this would be the last time you would see the guy. But um, amazing career. I mean, you know, he took over the, the company that was kind of started by his father to promote uh, Baum Mercier in the United States. And then uh, he left after a while. And what's interesting is he became a consultant. And, you know, usually sometimes you become a consultant. It's not, you know, they're consultants and there are consultants. There are consultants that really make a difference. And there are consultants who just kind of call themselves consultants because they're looking for something. And uh, he really, you know, I think he made his consultancy into a powerhouse. You know, it was a great source of what's going on. And he was always in touch with everybody. He always could make things happen. He knew everybody. He was good at smoothing over situations. There was one time where a, a company was, there was a, a report that a company was nearly going bankrupt, I believe, and they wanted to get the crisis PR firm to respond to it. And Stephen called me up. He said, look, you know, why don't you just talk with the CEO, find out what's going on? And we did. I talked with the CEO, found out what was going on, and it was much better than some crazy comment from the crisis uh, PR firm and stuff like that. So it was, he was good very good at smoothing things over at making connections and what really impressed me actually when i wrote his obit was all the time he gave to industry organizations i mean he was involved with a lot of them and you know it's not easy to to give so much time to so many organizations and uh i think that was really great yeah he'd been elected to a second term as chair of the jewelry security alliance 
I know that John Kennedy and JSA issued a lovely remembrance and he received all these awards. I think I saw him actually shortly after. I saw him, of course, as you mentioned, at 24 Karat Weekend and heard his speech and it did feel like Stephen Kaiser Weekend. I'm pretty sure I saw him walking in front of me in Geneva shortly thereafter where I flew to attend Watches and Wonders. Of course, he was a big watch industry figure and like you say, such a connector. That's what the headline of your obit said. And it's almost like he was a throwback to a different era where, you know, you've got this wheeling and dealing going on and he just, because he knows so many people and knows who to call and has everybody's numbers stored in his, well, at one point, surely it was a Rolodex. And of course, then it moved on to his phone and, you know, seemed to really carry on the the legacy established by his father, another, a figure that somebody I'd never met, but who had such a legendary reputation reputation in the trade for being such a figure, so many awards named after him and so on his father, Ben Kaiser, a real loss to the industry. And I know there are a lot of people. I would not be shocked that if there's some awards named after Stephen coming up. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure there will be. I, I wouldn't be shocked either. This industry wouldn't be the same without him. I think that's probably a very fair statement. And certainly the way the watch trade works here wouldn't be the same. And I know coming up in Vegas, he will be missed. And what a legend. I I'm very sorry for his family and my deepest condolences to his friends and to anyone who knew and loved Stephen Kaiser. There were many of you. And um, moving on, I wanted to just briefly tell you about a visit. I escaped to London last month in in May, late May. I was one of many journalists. I want to say something around 65 journalists who were invited to attend an event at the Design Museum. It was to celebrate a collection called the Oak Collection, which stands for one of a kind, a French, I'd like to say I've been telling my friends gazillionaire because he, he does seemingly have limitless budgets. I guess he's probably technically a billionaire named Patrick Gitreed, who has began over the last, I guess, over 40 years or so has amassed a collection of extraordinary timepieces, both vintage and modern, heavy on Patek Philippe, heavy on Rolex, and a few other independent makers, the celebrated sort like F.P. Journe and Carrie Vutalainen. And he's got a collection that's something like 600 pieces strong and has hired Nick Folks, who watch industry people will know as a, and a lot of people in this industry will know, a London-based writer who's authored many, many books on extraordinary collections and timepieces and is quite a, a dandy kind of in that great English tradition. And he hired Nick Folks to help curate the exhibition at the Design Museum. Something along the lines of 130 pieces were on display only for a week. And on the eve of the opening of this exhibition, this French billionaire invited all these journalists to come to London to stay at the Nobu Hotel to attend a party at the Design Museum that was something, I think there were something on the order of 700 people there. Just an extraordinary showing all to celebrate this collection, which was really only on view for a week. I think when I was there at this party, you know, Jean-Claude Beaver, the legendary former head of LVMH's watch division, remade the industry really in the early 80s when he took on Hublot and Omega and began to sort of develop these legendary marketing strategies for watches. So I got a glimpse of him there. George Bamford uh, got his break as a watch customizer working out of London, but is now, you know, in cahoots with lots of established Swiss brands. I mean, it was pretty much a who's who of the watch world, all at this shindig at the Design Museum on a brilliant 
week in London where the sun happened to be shining every day. It was just such a lovely time to be there. And it really felt like kind of the apogee of this moment in the watch collecting world where you can spend, I don't know how many millions of dollars celebrating a collection that's worth how many millions of dollars with all kinds of people in the watch world. It felt like this gilded age of watch collecting, you know, and this moment in time where really it seemed to kind of epitomize where we're at in the watch trade, where watches are being viewed as fine art, where they're being collected and displayed with that kind of reverence and intention. And that's what Mr. Gatride seemed to say is why he was doing this was he doesn't intend to sell the collection, but he does want this world of horology and high horology to be viewed by the same terms as fine art. But it did feel like I don't want to look back on this and say, wow, that was the moment when that bubble that we all talk about in the watch world actually started to burst. And it was kind of the uh, the dancing scene on the Titanic when everybody's having a jolly old time and then we don't see the iceberg that's looming. I hate to think that, but it was kind of hard not to view it as sort of the, the pinnacle of this world and what's happening in it in terms of prices and demand and unavailability and scarcity and all these factors coming together. So it was very interesting and we'll have to sort of wait a little while and see how things evolve in this world over the next few weeks and months. But it was fabulous. It was true. And this is fabulous. from his personal collection, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you've seen a lot of these watches. You've been to a lot of these kind of exhibits. Going to a glitzy thing is always fun and that's always entertaining. But I mean, do, do the watches still excite you? Like, did, did anything you saw really excite you as far as design? Yes. And that, that is a good question. I, I might offer one, you know, I'm very grateful and I think it was a very special event and obviously a very special thing to gather all these movers and shakers in the high-end watch industry and gather them here and have them sort of talking and connecting. The one thing is if you were a lay person and you wandered into this museum and you happen to go up to this room where the watches were on display, I don't think you'd really understand what you were looking at because, you know, you'd see these watches in a display case and it would say Patek Philippe and maybe the name of the model, perhaps the year, and that's it. And honestly, without knowing any context, without having any sense of who Patek Philippe is or why, you know, these rare Rolexes are important or who F.P. Jorn is, without having other parts of the exhibition talking about the mark that these brands and these watchmakers have made on the industry and even on technology at large or sort of how they sit in terms of 20th century innovations. Without knowing any of that, I think it would be really hard to appreciate them. You'd have to be a watch geek and kind of geek out over these things to truly appreciate them. So I I was left my head scratching a bit when I walked away from that exhibition wondering what does somebody who is just a member of the public and wanders in, what do they take away from this? So for me, you know, it was neat to see these things, but I, I would have appreciated even myself a greater context for them. It was a great event. It was a great event. I'm still, I'm trying to piece it all together. It did feel like a moment in the watch world that sort of seemed to say, you know, kind of tied together all the phenomenon that has happened over the last couple of years where watches really have become this new asset class and people, you know, are finding themselves paying two or three or even four times, or in the case of the Nautilus, you know, many, many more times the price of the watch at retail on secondary channels to acquire these objects and are trading them with that kind of investment mentality. You know, all, all since really the, the start of 2020, have we seen these trends come into play? And this seemed like kind of the pinnacle of that. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes from here. But it was... Uh, I, you know, I remember, so we had that Gen Z expert on 
a couple of weeks ago and he was saying that he would not spend eighty thousand dollars on a watch yeah which you know i'm i'm a gen xer and i i would be highly unlikely to do that also even if i had the money which i do not but um were there younger people there oh yeah i mean it was hard for me to t- it was really crowded it was hard for me to tell who was an industry person, somebody working at a brand or at an auction house or something from collectors, I couldn't tell. But yeah, there were definitely young people. And I know young people are part of this movement, this sort of rise in interest in watches. Certainly Gen Z is driving some of that. So yeah, I mean, I I think our guest who was Ziad Ahmed a few weeks ago, who did talk so eloquently about Gen Z, he's clearly one voice in that generation, but not the only one. I don't think Gen Z will be the watch industry's downfall. I don't think, I don't expect that. Although I do think the generation is driving the industry to, you know, think differently, do things differently, all in the service of being more responsible, more thoughtful, more ethical, more sustainable, all good stuff. But I don't think they're going to stop buying. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now back to the show. And we talked a little bit about smartwatches, I remember, on our last podcast, and I did a thing on the Apple Watch and, you know, the kind of luxury model. And it's interesting, I've been talking to people who have Apple Watches. And what's very interesting is almost everybody has it for fitness and for the time, and that's it. But they don't consider it like a fashion item. They don't order Ubers with it or play music with it. Some of the things that people were talking about in the beginning, it's all basically a watch and a Fitbit, basically, at least from my anecdotal experience. Yeah. The Apple Watch, the way it's understood now is really as a, a tool for health. I think that's true. I do think it it's helped the watch industry probably more than it's hurt it. Not at the lower end. At the lower end, if you were a fashion brand or a middling quartz brand, the Apple Watch most likely obliterated your business over the last five years or so. But at the high end, it probably only helped. It's gotten people talking about watches, thinking about watches, wearing watches, and perhaps graduating into more expensive luxury watches. Um, well, speaking of other innovations and technologies, you just did a story fairly recently about De Beers and blockchain technology. Can you tell us about that? De Beers has had this project for a couple of years, Tracer, and it's gone through different different iterations. I think at first they wanted to make it this industry-wide thing that the whole industry would get involved with. And now it's just basically for making it available to their site holders and their clients. Basically, it's a way to track diamonds through the chain using blockchain. You know, it's not just blockchain because, you know, if it was just blockchain, then you would have the issue of you could put bad information on. There's a whole kind of set of protocols about tracking. And it's something that, you know, they've been working on for a long time. And I think it got stalled. It was kind of on the back burner for a little bit. But obviously what's happening with Russia kind of put it up front a little bit. So now they say they can basically trace all their diamonds for grainers and above in rough, which is one carat and above, which is pretty substantial. That's quite a feat. And they think they can scale it. And it's just a very interesting technology. And I mean, in a way, it's something that we should have had a long time ago, you know, given conflict diamonds and all the bad publicity the industry has had, you know, it is good to know exactly where your your products are coming from. So, you know, it's something that's that's kind of been a long time in the works. There are a whole bunch of other efforts out there to trace diamonds from Serin, from GIA. There's a lot of interesting work being done in this field, but just given De Beers' power at this point, it's probably the most ambitious and it it could be possibly considered one of the farthest along. So say I'm a 
customer who walks into a Forever Mark retailer or Forever Mark store, any idea how I might be introduced to this this technology? Well, I think or what? This, this particular technology, they also have something called the Code of Origin, which is which is different. So, and that's more consumer facing, and they're still working on that part. This is more trade facing. This is basically saying these are De Beers diamonds, and these are not Russian diamonds at this point. So at some point, there probably will be a consumer facing element. And this will be a key part of it that they'll say that we can do all these steps and have all this traceability. So yeah, no, you're right. I feel like this mind to market conversation, uh, we've had it for at least 20 years, you know, so the fact that we can actually now 20 yeah, years later, conflict diamonds was 22 years ago, right? That's when it really kind of got big. It's not something that consumers are necessarily asking for. But I think when it's provided, it gives them a little extra peace of mind. So you, Rob, recently did another story on recycled gold, and I guess the lack of a clear definition of that term. And so clearly it's it has led to, if not a outright abuse, or at least intentional abuse, it's just a word that seems misused by the industry, even if it's, you know, with the best of intentions. What, why did you write that story? What prompted it? I was on a, a webinar, I think, sponsored by Andrea Hill for MGSA. And that was one of the subjects that came up. And, you know, I've written about Recycled Gold before, but I've never more than in passing really considered the concept, like, what is Recycled Gold? And it, it turns out it has, like, so many different definitions. There was a list that I linked to in my article from uh, Christina Miller, who's been on this podcast, and she put together all the different definitions. And it's amazing that, that they're very different. And even what is also interesting and perhaps not even discussed is that the Federal Trade Commission Green Guides definition defines something recycled as something that would otherwise go in the in the trash. So you you take a, you know, a jug of milk and instead of throwing it out, you put it in the recycle bin and then you reuse it as plastic, right? gold has never been thrown out, right? It never, you know, people don't chuck out their gold rings and their gold watches and stuff like that. So you could argue that recycled gold currently does not meet the FTC's definition. It's probably something that's, you know, when the FTC starts to revise their green guides, and I think they're going to do that this year, that's something that might come up. Like, is recycled gold, does that count as something that really is recycled, considering that gold has been quote unquote, reused since the beginning of time. I think we feel as consumers, you know, in an ecological crisis, that it's good to reuse products. That is generally a positive thing. However, you know, I mean, one of the problems with the recycled gold is you don't know where, in every case, know where it's coming from. And that, you know, things have been laundered from conflict areas and been called recycled gold. So it's a tough issue. And uh, apparently the people who apply this, this kind of gold have found that they don't have enough supply if you kind of go by some of these strict definitions. So it's something I think the industry needs to really start thinking about and be a lot clearer about. It's uh, it's a very complicated issue, and uh, hopefully there's going to be more attention paid to it and a, a lot more conversations about it. Thank you. It, it is a complicated issue. I've thought about it. I've tried to get my arms around it and to do a really proper deep dive into what it is or what it's like. It's not so much what is recycled gold, but what kind of gold should jewelers actually be using? It's that sort of certified ethical gold. 
on that note, in a few weeks' time after Las Vegas, I'm going to meet with jeweler Pippa Small. She's based in London, but has a lot of wonderful projects where she works with smaller communities around the world, everywhere from jewelers in Syria to Burma to Afghanistan to create really beautiful pieces in gold. And she has now a, a project coming up in Colombia that I am yet to learn about. But again, it's with a smaller community of artisanal miners, not fair trade or fair mind in, in the capital F sense, but I suppose fair trade in the lowercase sense. But that recycled, you know, every time I see that recycled gold sort of labeled, you know, either in a social media post or on a jeweler's website, I kind of cringe because most often, and you do note this in your article, those claims are unsubstantiated. So it's just this idea that because we've labeled it recycled, that should somehow convey our ethical chops so that we are, you know, we are not greenwashing in any way. We are responsible jewelers. And that's just not the case because as we've just pointed out, it could mean anything really. It could mean it was an investment bar that was mined illegally in some Congolese mine and has made its way to you. And just the fact that it used to be something else, you know, a bar of gold used for investment and now it's jewelry somehow means it's recycled and therefore okay. You know, obviously we know that's not true. So yeah, I guess I guess maybe the, the takeaway is jewelers need to have more soul searching conversations with their suppliers and themselves about what they want to use and how they want to communicate that and what it all means and not just take the easy way out, which is just to slap a, a label on it and think that consumers will be just fine with that. Or have the government issue regulations because that always, they're in the end, the ultimate arbiter. So if the Federal Trade Commission says this is what you can say and this is what you can't say, that's extremely important. In the end, I think they're probably the best argument settler we have. Yeah. But is there any sign that the FTC is moving on that? Uh, I mean, you know, they're revising their green guide. So, I mean, that's possible. That's something that could come up. I, I'm sure they don't think it's the biggest problem in the world, but um, certainly it's not out of the question. I mean, it's a it's a legitimate issue. So, yeah. Well, we'll certainly encounter lots of recycled gold, quote unquote. I expect it in Las Vegas next week. Although for those of you listening, it'll be this week because you're hearing this as many people are actually on their way to Vegas. I am flying out on Tuesday the 7th and arriving just in time for the opening of luxury on June 8th. And my schedule is already packed. I have been contacted by so many people. I gotta say, this is uh, even more than pre-pandemic. This seems like a pretty jam-packed Vegas coming up. I mean, yeah, I have a lot of people contacting me, a lot of events, you know, a lot of events being brought back. So it should be, it should be exciting and it's always good to see people with or without masks and uh you know it's just it's different and it's gonna be it's it's gonna be uh, hopefully a lot of fun all the events are back on there's a lot of excitement of course there's the couture show at the win across the street so tons of people are gonna just be in the vicinity and um it does seem like a good moment i hope the weather isn't overly hot and i really i hope that we get to squeeze it all in i think it's gonna be a great show and likely a very good sales opportunity for most exhibitors it seems like at least we're poised to have a very good show people are really needing to restock from what i understand and there's a lot Lots of great trends out there and we'll be doing tons of talks at the showcase stage and in the various classrooms or sort of educational spaces on level one. So anybody coming in prior to the show opening on Friday, on Thursday, there's a big day of education. There's, of course, keynote addresses on everything from the metaverse to web 
3.0 and how all of you can upgrade your selling strategies, take advantage of all the new technology coming our way. So, so much, so much to say. I look forward to seeing everybody there. And hopefully on Saturday night, there's a big networking opportunity at the JCK Rocks party that's happening at the Venetian. And then Sunday, of course, is Jewelry for Children. And then I think everybody's kind of skating home by Monday at the latest. So I can't wait to see you, Rob. Really looking forward to- Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah, having a drink. I, I can sign my book if anybody wants that. Not that my signature is that valuable, but you never know. Well, why not? Um, you, you could why not? grow to be very valuable in, in the yes. months and years to come. I'm actually in the middle of, I keep, I it's like my plane book. So I've been saving well, there you it go. plane journeys and it's, it's great. I mean, I'm every time Thank I come you. back into it, this is murder is not a girl's best friend, of course. For I'll, I'll, I'll sign either one of them. Yeah, please. Yeah. I'm bringing it because it's like I said, it's my travel book. It's a great read for anybody actually concerned with diamonds and their sources and claims of responsibility, I think. So it touches on all, all kinds of cool, very, very timely subjects. So yes, I will bring my book. You will sign it and we will clink glasses. And I, I want to uh, wish my father a happy birthday. He's He was 90. <sighs> Just turned ninety. Ah, happy uh, birthday, yes. Mr. Bates! What a yeah. what a milestone! Yeah, it's nice. It um, is nice. Well done. Well done to reach that. <laughs> Make it to ninety, right? Make it to yeah. ninety. It's something. It is something. Well, wonderful. All right. Well, I think uh, on that note, everyone who is coming to Vegas, have a wonderful, safe, and smooth journey. Look forward to seeing you. And for those of you who aren't going to be there, do stay tuned for our coverage. We're going to have all the stories, all the news that's fit to print. Yes, should be fun. Look forward. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.